This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Victor Davis Hansen is the Martin and Eiley Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He earned his PhD in classics from Stanford, and since that time, he's enjoyed a distinguished teaching and academic career. He's widely published, the author of dozens of influential books, including A History of World War II, various titles on military history. Professor Hansen's scholarship has earned him numerous awards, including the National Humanities Medal and the Bradley Prize. He has also served as a visiting professor of military history at the U.S. Naval Academy. He has taught at Pepperdine University and Hillsdale College. His latest book, The Dying Citizen, is the topic of our conversation today. Victor Davis Hansen, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you for having me. Your latest book, The Dying Citizen, uh, even by its arresting title, makes quite a claim. Indeed, it's, a, in a, it's an historical claim. It's a moral claim. What's behind that title? Well, a couple, a lot of things. The first is that the, the reminder that citizenship is not the norm in civilization. It came very late to civilization, 2,500 years ago, 7th century Greece, BC, and it's fragile. And most uh, of the 190 to 200 nations in the world today are not consensual. There are, there's no concept of the citizenship. The second was, uh, we used to have I guess we would call them exclusive privileges for the people who took on the burden of citizenship and would vote and audit their, um, their elected officials and participate in civics. But I can't think there's much distinctions left between a resident, whether a legal resident or an illegal. I mean, uh, we have 800,000 illegal residents that are voting in New York elections and same will be true here in California. Illegal residents are legal. They don't have to be citizens to serve in the military. Used to be a, a prime uh, signature of citizenship is only the citizen could leave and come back in their borders on their own volition. And yet we see that there is no border in the South. In fact, there's more passport control for citizens than you and I wanted to go to Mexico. We would be further audited than somebody just walked across the border. Again, uh, citizens, only citizens could participate in national elections. It's a federal law that, that seems to be gone out of the way. I can go on. The only one I know that remains as the, uh, distinction between a citizen and a non-citizen is the right to hold office. And that's already being whittled away by appointed positions here in California. So that was what, another one of my worries. And then finally, uh, I felt that there were forces, centrifugal forces from the bottom up, ancient forces, tribalism, uh, identity politics, open borders, and the attack on the middle class or a feudal economy as a result. And then there were uh, uh, pressures from above the permanent state efforts to change the constitution. And then of course, globalism. As you trace the history of citizenship, you might think that uh, you would have divided your book into pre-citizens, citizens, and post-citizens, but the division of the book is actually pre-citizens and post-citizens. Uh, do I make the correct inference that uh, that you're making a point by by leaving out that age of the citizen? Are you are you saying that we are 
in that post citizen age, or are you uh, trying to harken back? I think I say at one point explicitly, we're in the age of both pre-citizens and post-citizens, but citizenship itself is threatened. And by that, I mean, uh, I can get up in the morning on my farm and go into a, a Central Valley town here, and I would expect that a third of the population is not legal. Or I can drive over to Stanford University and I can be told that particular jobs will be reserved on the basis of how your, uh, your superficial appearance, a tribalism. And so whether it, it's the elite or the underclasses, both of these pressures are, are squeezing the citizen. And uh, as I said, there's not a lot of, of privileges left. I mentioned in the book that we had a hundred, in the epilogue, we had 103 million mail-in or early ballots. 63% of the last, in the last election did not vote on election day. That was never envisioned before. Abraham Lincoln had sort of soldiers ballots, but it was a one-time thing during the civil war. And even then it was very controversial, but this is getting, uh, so we're altering the very institutions, whether it's the number of 50 states or the filibuster or um, the electoral college or a nine person Supreme court, uh, it's all, or the state's prerogatives, not exclusive, but their, their main responsibility for setting ballot laws for national election. All of that is now under consideration and pressure by the elite. But on the other side, we have people, just 2 million people just walked across the border as well. And, uh, we don't really have a middle class in, in a lot of these blue states anymore, especially California. I think all the statistics show that, that the number of welfare recipients, uh, the number of people living below the poverty line is increasing. The number of billionaires and very wealthy people is increasing. And, um, we've had about 8 million people leave the state in the last 35, 40 years. Well, what we're looking at is undoubtedly a political and a cultural crisis, but it has historical roots. And so I want to take us back as you begin your argument. Uh, You are a classicist, and uh, you really begin in classical sources in terms of the definition of the civitas and uh, and of citizenship. Uh, You also point out that that the, the framers of our constitutional order understood themselves to be in continuity with that uh, that tradition of citizenship. So I'd like to take a, a, a moment and ask you to kind of lay out the historical landscape first in terms of, of the American experience. What came before? I mean, in, in the classical inheritance, what, what, what was learned that the framers of our constitutional order uh, saw as absolutely foundational? Well, they were buffeted by these two enlightenment terms that had been very popular in the work of Rousseau or Montesquieu, um, and they had gone back to the Renaissance, Machiavelli and others. And one was a republic and one was a democracy. And that were, those were euphemisms for the Athenian model and the Roman model. And we sometimes forget that the Roman Republic lasted seven and a half centuries before it became imperial. But the founders and their wisdom liked the idea of citizens voting, but they did not like the Athenian model. Most of what they knew from that came from Aristotle's politics, Thucydides history and some plays in which the democracy and the popular court had killed Socrates. They had executed all of the residents of Milos, but so there were these, these examples, and I'm just paraphrasing some of the things that come up in the Federalist papers or some of the notebooks of the founders. 
they felt that the people on any, if they're allowed on any given day without the bridles of law, tradition, and custom, and a representative government between them and policy could be quite dangerous. And so they tried to follow a model that had grown up in antithesis to Athens at Sparta, at Crete, and, but especially at Rome. And that was a tripartite government, legislative, the Roman Senate or the Greek bully, and then it was executive, whether it was an archon or two consuls, and then a judiciary, whether it was, um, in, in Sparta, the ephors, uh, where they oversight in Rome, they had censors and people like that, tribunate courts. So the idea was that they had a very pessimistic view of human nature and they liked the Roman model better. And they thought that that would combine, uh, the people's will, but it would be buffeted. And then they were very influenced by the spirit of laws, but monastery, the idea of two houses, but that, that was a classical idea. The Athenian assembly, the Athenian bully, the Spartan Gerousia, the, the upper chamber and the popular ecclesia. And what they meant by that is our house of representatives keeps its um, finger on the pulse of America every two years and the right. whole house flips over, but that's going to be balanced by people who have to be 30, not 25 hold office and are not popularly elected in the sense that, um, they represent a state. They don't represent 750 people like a representative does. And so they felt that, and they're only one third of the house of the Senate flips over right here. So they felt that this was a, a, a the best they could find in the classical tradition and how it was interpreted and improved upon and, and eroded during the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, English common law as well. You know, it's interesting, even as you think of Washington, D.C., the LaFont plan and uh, Washington's vision for the city, um, there was an effort to uh, to jump over, backwards that is, uh, over the, uh, the medieval period and uh, to go to the classical sources right down to the architecture and, and right down to the, the, uh, the depiction of, of our founders in classical garb. And uh, that was a very interesting statement. It was certainly noted by Tocqueville and so many others. This is a this is a statement of a yes and a no, a yes to that classical tradition in in a new world in a new era, but it was also a no uh, to uh, to certain uh, concepts they thought were uh, were very dangerous or uh, or uh, certainly threatening to liberty. I think they they were. I'm not sure they were all deists, that is people who understood and appreciated the value of believing in a superior meaning, especially Jesus Christ and God, as we know in the Christian sense, even though they might not have been all devout, but they certainly looked back and they looked at the religious wars in Europe. They looked at the problem of succession in England, Henry VIII and the wars between the Anglican and Catholic church, uh, the, the role of the Pope in interfering in governments. And so they made it very clear that while they invoke God, uh, throughout the declaration and the idea that we're, we are equal and we have inalienable rights given, given by God, they were very careful not to suggest that people had to have a particular religion or they had to, and there's been that is, that was argued on for the last 234 years. There's people who said, well, we're, we're innate in the constitution and even in the declaration is a secular view and it's neutral, but it should have been more positive. And I think that the founders looked at Europe when 
the state had been religious and uh, they felt, you know what, we do not want a, a superior religious office, one and the same appointed by the, the government. Well, this would be a conversation for another time, yeah. but uh, as a theologian, I simply want to say that uh, uh, the the available intellectual tools of the uh, of the eighteenth century uh, in uh, in the European and the European American tradition were so deeply steeped in Christianity, even when they thought they were secular, they were not very secular. Uh, their their worldview was 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 theological, even if they individually were not, and. Uh, I, I I think there would be a great deal of difficulty in jumping from the, the 18th century to the 21st century in, in, in imagining how even the most, say, uh, deistic of the uh, of our founders would imagine a uh, an, an aggressively secular modern state uh, in terms of the securing of values, which after all, the declaration, you know, makes very clear. It's, it's, it's an interesting question, but uh, one we'll have to leave for another time. Yeah, I, I think it's what they were trying to do was to ward off something. Part of it was because we were in a new land. We had a variable farmland. There was opportunity. We were not, if you think about it in the context of the time, they avoided almost all of the pitfalls that the other European powers were undergoing. The Spanish idea that you could only be Catholic to immigrate and part of the Iberian Peninsula to get into South and Central America and have a state religion. They didn't want that. And there really wasn't a middle class in Southern Europe at this time, as, as uh, was developing in Northern Europe. The idea that you could come to the United States or North America, you could be of any religion. And that was important, I think. And then they were very worried about, uh, as I said, radical democracy, divorce from uh, traditional custom, but in uh, divorce from religion as well. We should remember that just less than a decade after the constitution was ratified, France went through these series of upheavals where we finally had the Jacobins worshiping ratio, pure reason. And they renamed the days of the week. They renamed the months. They renamed everything. They, they just, they killed over six or 7,000 Catholic clergy. And the idea was in there, it wasn't liberty and justice, or it wasn't uh, freedom. It was fraternity and egalitarianism, that is not the American or inherited from the British as well, equality of opportunity, but state mandated equity or, or quality of result. And you can see that because we diverse from that path, we have been far more, I think, far more successful in a dynamic country because of that. And actually uh, offered far more continuity of liberty, by the way. Yes. Liberty uh, was a that was a, it's a very good point. They made a distinction in all of their writings that it's very easy to have freedom in the depopulated landscape. Freedom is a Germanic word. It has no Latin or Greek root, Freiheit. And when people talk of freedom, that was one thing. The Native Americans had freedom to do as they pleased because it was based on demographics. But to have freedom within a very urban environment or a, a freedom within civilization with laws, they needed a concept of libertas, the Roman idea that you can be free of the states. You need the state and you have to live with people in close proximity, but you can still have a institutionalized freedom, which they call liberty. Now you use the word citizen as uh, as really the template for your entire argument. It's the, it's the fulcrum of your formula here. Uh, I was, uh, as a boy taught citizenship 
the word citizen was a constantly invoked word. And uh, we had classes. There was a, a, a decorum of citizenship. There were the rituals of citizenship. I was a Boy Scout uh, uh, back in the golden era, I would say. And, uh, the, you know, the rituals of citizenship, the a God and Country uh, a, award that one earned. And, uh, and, and both uh, church, in which I was very involved, and school, uh, which at that time was the public schools, they reinforced this notion of, of citizenship. But I think as we uh, fast forward to the year 2022, as we're having this conversation, there are many circles in the United States where that's considered a dangerous, repressive, hegemonistic word. It is. I think the left as we knew it, I mean, I should say rather the Democratic Party as we know, knew it, kind of got all of their agendas satisfied in the 60s and 70s. By that, I mean, there were very good ideas of Social Security, eight-hour work week, 40 hours a week, 40 hours a week, eight hours a day, overtime, disability. But they made the next leap in the 80s and 90s that they did not just want a, a level playing field, but they wanted a larger government. And this is, has an ancient pedigree to come in and engineer how people thought and act in a collective sense, and it was going to be overseen by a, a self-appointed group of elite people. And they taught, they controlled all of the levers of influence. Now they have that long march through our, our institutions is now complete. They control academia, K through 12, the corporate boardroom, Wall Street, traditional media, Silicon Valley, foundations, even professional sports. Even though they don't control or, or have influence over the majority of Americans, it's very hard to communicate or retrieve information off the internet or watch the Super Bowl without that imprint of the left and that message, that subtext that's always there, that you're, you're born into an unfair system. Uh, you perpetuated an unfair system. The system has to be destroyed or changed to our dictates, and we don't need a majority. Uh, consensus to achieve those goals because our more our moral aims are such that they justify almost any means to achieve them. Uh, Professor Hansen, I uh, I read constantly and try to uh, try to get as much out of uh, every book as as it deserves, frankly. And uh, a good many of the books that are published today are uh, are articles expanded into books. Uh, there's just a lot of fill and uh, a lot of space. Uh, that is not characteristic of your book, which is why uh, I'm enjoying this Thank conversation and, and why I, I greatly appreciated the book. Uh, I think with a uh, with, with a uh, an accomplishment that that is fairly rare these days, every one of your chapters actually does important work. And so I, I want to ask you if I could just follow through your yeah. chapters, because in, in yeah. a way that, Frankly, doesn't fit most conversations. Your chapters do establish the uh, the points, and I'm just going to mention before I, I ask you the first question yeah. that the chapters you you divide the book between pre citizen and post citizens, and uh, as you talk about pre citizens, you talk about peasants, residents, and tribes. Would you just walk us through those three? Yeah. Well, citizenship was bound with the middle class and. People were not shy in ancient philosophical works or Aristotle positive about it, Plato less so, but the idea was the very wealthy will always have greater means to change, warp, leverage government, and the poor will not be an independent voice because they look to the state for 
sustenance, but the middle class, if they were property owning, uh, I guess today that would be not a 10 acre farm, but a house or a 40 acre farm in our experience. And they were economically autonomous. They could voice their, their disagreement or their views to both the wealthy and the poor. And so it really citizenship arises in Greece to protect the small landowning hoplite soldier, uh, who wants to pass on his property. Property was very important in the creation of citizenship. And so when you don't have a middle class, whether it's a feudal system where you have lords and then a keep and then peasants or really in California, I mean, we have between La Jolla and Berkeley, the largest number of zip codes with the highest incomes. We have the greatest number of billionaires. We have the highest, uh, prices per square foot, electricity for a house, electricity, gas, et cetera. And yet we have one out of three people who are on public assistance and 22% of the population lives before the, uh, below the poverty line with 600,000 homeless. And the middle class has leaving. We've got about 8 million people that have gone to Nevada or Texas or Florida or Wyoming. And so we're becoming a feudal society and our legislature is a one party system. So that is worrisome. And, uh, if you lose a middle class, I don't think consensual government, there's no record that it exists outside the middle class. And the second one you mentioned was, um, residency. And residency is really a, a euphemism for open borders. And that is you're, it's, you're going back to a pre-modern idea that as try as a tribe and people come across a border or, or come in for a while and, and stay there and for economic or cultural or military, they move on. They never get rooted. It's tied into agriculture as well, but they never get rooted into a, a, a place. Uh, Professor, des describe what you mean by tribes. Tribe is that you have your initial or primary allegiance to somebody who is either related to you directly by blood or has a superficial appearance with you. Sometimes it can be linguistic or religious, but more often it's ethnic and racial. Uh, I once, I think I've been to every Middle East country and I always am curious when I go there, why such very wealthy places don't always, uh, match living, you know, the standard of living, let's say in, uh, in Japan or the United States or Europe. And it, a, a lot of people have said to me, well, we hire our first cousin. We don't have a meritocracy. And so the idea that birds of a feather flock together, that's, that's a line that comes out of Plato's law. It's, it's an ink. That's the most natural affinity that we all have. And yet the United States is the only multiracial democracy, I think, in history that's worked, unless you think, or we think that India and Brazil are, are models to emulate. I don't think so. So, and we, we work because the original European population was, was able to, uh, equal and they had God given rights. And then through the amendment process, we expanded that so that race became incidental rather than superficial to who we are. But I felt in the last 30 years, we're re-tribalized as the country gets more ethnically and racially diverse. We went 
away from the melting pot and we absorb what they call the salad bowl that for superficial appearance or ethnic heritage is essential to who we are, not incidental. And that does, there's no evidence that I can think of that that's going to work. It ha- we, if we, if we follow that path, we have a rendezvous with the former Yugoslavia or Iraq or Rwanda and everybody will go tribal. Once one group goes tribal, then the other people for their own survival will go tribal. This is in the first half of your book entitled Pre-Citizens. And with those chapters, peasants, residents, and tribes, you're really pointing to three, say, uh, necessary dimensions of of understanding this uh, concept of of citizenship. With the peasants, uh, you really are referring to the necessity of what you call middleness, the the middle class. I can remember years ago, I guess nearly 20 years ago now, uh, Francis Fukuyama, uh, yes. wrote an essay, I think, in National Affairs, in, in which he simply said that democracy can't exist without a middle class. And yeah. without a middle class that can politically uh, dominate the, uh, the, the electoral landscape in such a way that, uh, that neither of the, uh, of the alternatives uh, can, uh, can disrupt the political process. And, and I think one of the points you make, by the way, in, in that particular chapter, your very first chapter, is the fact that in, in some ways, and you don't say this as a sentence, so I'm, I'm going to say it, and then you can tell me that's not what you meant. Uh, it, we have set up a situation socially in the United States where uh, it's not so much that people are leaving the middle class to move up, but rather that uh, we're making it very difficult for people in the middle class to stay in the middle class. Yeah, I think what's happened, there's a lot of contributors to that um, in the secular sense. Globalization at the turn of the millennia was offered to us as a way of spreading Westernization and indeed Americanization all over the planet. And it would bring to people in the Amazon basin or Mongolia or the mountains of Peru, the same things that we have, antibiotics, uh, eyeglasses, etc., popular culture, Hollywood movies, and it succeeded beyond our wild imagination, but it also began to change our economic system and people who were captains of industry started to embrace these ideas that if it's the most uh, efficient way to produce goods and services, I will outsource or offshore something. So we literally took muscular labor and we devalued it psychologically, spiritually, economically. And the result was that a lot of the things we used to do very well, even though we have good infrastructure, we have cheaper energy costs than Europe or Japan, or even some of the poorer countries, we have greater security, we have a better banking system. But nevertheless, in this very short-sighted fashion, we just wrote off the interior of the country, the the so-called Rust Bill. And then we had an elite, maybe from Boston to Miami or from uh, Berkeley to La Jolla, I, I should say Seattle to La Jolla, that they had certain skills that couldn't be Xerox, law, media, insurance, investment, academia, and they had a 7 billion person market now, plus almost 8 billion. And they became fabulously wealthy. And then they created exegesis to explain why they were wealthy. And it was because they supposedly had all these degrees and they were better trained and the people in the middle didn't code. And out of that, we started to say that everybody's going to go to college because you don't want to end up as an electrician or a plumber or 
a uh, sheetrock hanger. And the result is that this, the, this youth has $1.7 trillion in aggregate student debt. The, a lot of them live with their parents. The age when people get married in just 20 years has gone from about 24 to 28. The first child has gone to about 33 the age. Uh, home ownership is now on the decline again, down to about 61% from 63 or 4. And, and you know, it's what Tocqueville called prolonged adolescence. And it's really, you talk to these young people and they have just enough money in their debt and they have these degrees in the social sciences or the studies courses yeah. to satisfy their appetites, but they're not economically viable. So they don't get right. married and, you know, you can see it. We're 1.7 now in our demographers or fertility rate versus 2.1 just 20 years ago. Yeah. I, uh, I, I had a wake up call, uh, after I had spoken at a church in Nashville. And a very proud mom came along with her college graduating son. And uh, obviously the kid was very bright and told me about all his plans for life. And uh, he was graduating with a, a, a baccalaureate degree. Uh, I won't say the name, but a major private university in Nashville. And uh, he, uh, he was graduating with this uh, uh, undergraduate degree in French literature. And I, I thought, well, that, that's interesting. What are you going to do with that? And he said, I'm not sure, but probably a teaching position. And I'm thinking, well, this is going to be a very rare position. But the bottom line is he had, this would be 20 years ago now, he had like $180,000 in student debt. And uh, I simply was astounded as I was standing there because I'm, I'm doing the math because I'm president of an academic institution and I know what kind of money he's likely to make. He's never going to dig out of $187,000 of debt unless he just does nothing more than serve that debt for the next 15 years, which makes your point. He's not going yeah. to get married. He's not going to have children. He's not. Not he's going to not. have a house. And we pay for that because yeah. we, the government, guarantee those federal loans. And, we t and the whole issue of moral yeah. hazard just dissipates. And so the universities, the elite universities in particular, have raised their rates of tuition room and board faster Absolutely. than the rate of inflation. And they have these huge multi-billion dollar endowments that are not taxed, even though they're highly political. Um, I was a professor for 21 years. I, I'm, at the, I'm classified as a professor, even though I'm a senior for the Hoover Institution. But I can tell you that a lot of the things are going on in the university, whether it's this archaic idea of uh, tenure versus maybe five-year contracts where you fulfill particular conditions before you, you can be rehired. I think they're all sort of starting to go by the wayside because more and more people are looking at this cost and then the politicalization and the mediocrity. And uh, you can really see it. You can really see it if you ask a university president. I have them many times. What, since you used to require the SAT and the AACT, many of them are dropping. Why don't you have an exit exam so that we could see exactly how much better a person does on a standardized test four years, six years later? And they, I mean, they, their, their argument of the SAT was to be meritocratic and then say, well, just because you went to this high school didn't mean you get a, your A meant the same as that high school. So, but they never applied it to themselves. They never said, just because you got this BA from Stanford, doesn't mean it's better from Fresno State's BA. And so you could kind of, not that you can prove everything with a standardized test, but they are very adamant. They don't. And they, if you say to a, a university, I think people should have the choice one year and a half in a therapeutic school of education to be credentialed. But if they want to get a master's degree in an academic subject, 
why can't they? They can teach at junior college, community college and universities, but not high school or grammar school. So I think a lot of these things are being overtaken by reality. And especially you you see governors and states pushing back on this. And by the way, I'm president of an institution with thousands of students and we take not one penny of state or federal or any other form of tax money. We have uh, no participation in title IV funding and uh, we pay a price for that. Yeah. But uh, we also have our uh, liberty uh, for that sake. But that infusion of all that money uh, is is why, uh, in other words, it it, it should not cost anything like $70,000 a year to educate anyone. And that's not paying for education. But nonetheless, I think it's a brand, you're paying for the, I have this conversation almost weekly with parents who will call me and say, my son got into Harvard or Stanford or Berkeley or something, but they also got in, they applied to Hillsdale college or St. Thomas, you know, you're right. And I don't know what to do. I know they'll get a better education by not going to these places. I know they're ripping me off. Basically they say that. But I need that brand. It's like a cattle brand. And I think universities now know that they will not become increasingly secretive, especially with their repertory admissions, where they're now they're keeping very quiet about it. But race and gender, but a particular right. race has been their central directive in admission and equity gradients. Uh, so I, I think they're going to lose their, get off their pedestal, especially on matters of tax exemptions and things like that. Well, you see the the uh, pushback, especially in in states where uh, you have governors who are taking on the educational establishment, and so I've I've yeah. been I've been shocked, frankly, uh, pleased but shocked at uh, efforts in Florida, Georgia, even uh, recently in Texas uh, to redefine uh, tenure and uh, other uh, 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 the sacred cows of uh, this uh, higher academic uh, culture, and. Uh, you know, I don't know how far they will get. I remember the optimism when President Reagan took on the uh, Department of Education and uh, how that ended in uh, what could only be described as conservative surrender. But uh, but when it comes to the governors, uh, since they uh, they are looking at the budget, I think uh, some of them r- really are uh, moving into that space. But he- here you talk about peasants, residents, and tribes, and you're making the distinction in the second chapter between one who's merely a resident and one who is a citizen. And uh, citizenship provides not only identity and location, but a set of obligations. So now I want to ask you about something that's not in your book, or more accurately, someone who is not in your book. And so here's a Christian theologian just wanting to know, how in the world could you write about this without Augustine? Well, I made a a decision that um, I was not going to talk about non-secular lit- literature. I mean, I, I, I would say three or four places that as a Christian, I think it's very important, but I wanted to make the argument yeah. that if I made the argument that the catalyst for these sweeping economic changes and these distortions in what the founders intended was a moral one, and it was because of secularism, agnosticism, atheism, Uh, satisfaction of the appetites at any cost, materialism, which I think it is, then I was going to lose a lot of readers because they were going to tell me, well, this is just a thinly disguised track for uh, return to a particular type of religion. So I didn't do that. But I think I said enough places there that these are moral issues. Right. And 
And by Augustine, I don't just mean moral. I, I mean, you know, it, no, it but I mean to me, by yeah. that, yeah. Uh, there's, as you know, there's this huge debate among conservatives about the nature of the economy and social spending and yes. whether capitalism is a Christian idea and whether it creates too much inequality. And they're starting to go back and look at the Hayek or creative destruction argument and say, you know what, uh, we as conservatives don't want to um, bring another Walmart into our because it doesn't pay our fellow man enough or something like that argument. And I didn't want to get into that and in those terms. Right. And, uh, yeah, that'd, that'd be a very fun uh, debate. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. in that, I'm in that debate constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then that that's been voiced to me 20 times. Yeah. At least. But what I'm, what I meant by Augustine is that, uh, so, uh, Augustine's the city of God, it, yes. it, it, what it, it it, and I would argue, changed the direction of political thought, uh, especially as he dealt with the city of man. Because what he did in speaking to Christians was to say that the city of man, that the, the earthly city, actually does have rightful demands. And uh, that's something that I think many, many Christians don't understand. But he, uh, it, it wasn't just that he spoke of, as the Apostle Paul, being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and, and spoke of the heavenly city. That's where all of our satisfactions are uh, are realized uh, in Christ. But but rather, it's the fact that the earthly city has importance. You know, Peter Brown, the great historian of antiquity, with whom I had uh, some of these conversations on this program, you know, he pointed out that uh, Augustine basically gave a rationale for uh, uh, Rome uh, in uh, even in its decay. To continue to operate and uh, and gave citizens uh, marching orders: go plant uh, fields, don't let them go fallow, and and maintain virtues. Uh, so anyway, I'm just speaking up for Augustine because yeah. I can't talk about uh, Western. Uh, uh, but I didn't want to get him. into that because yeah. for I and Peter Brown wrote Augustine of Hippo is a wonderful biography. But you know, if you read something. Uh, by Jeffrey Dayson or others, they'll say that mm -hmm. the amount, the, the forces that led to the Reformation. Yes. There were millions of acres of land, for example, owned by the church and the conditions of land tenure were not subject to either political, political enlightenment or roles of free market economics. And that hurt people and that there were certain things that, and I think Augustine saved Christianity because whether they were the liberist uh, or the Manichaeans, that he sort of took all of these strands of Christianity and he molded it into something called, this is orthodoxy, without that. And, and he was trying to do something, I, I think, in a much more difficult environment that the Byzantines, for all of our criticism of them, succeeded earlier and better because they lasted for a thousand years. And when Rome and the West fell, but there was, there was a need in both the Eastern and Western empire for some type of uh, orthodoxy or some type of reference point that, so Christianity wasn't just entirely dispersed in those very fragile early days. The second half of your book is entitled Post-Citizens, and you, you don't wait until the second half to get to contemporary issues. You, yeah. you, you, you go back and forth in every one of your chapters. But you talk about the unelected, the evolutionaries, and the globalists. Um, you really uh, hit, 
hit maximum speed, so to, so to speak, in your argument in, in those three chapters. The unelected and uh, the, the rise of the administrative state. As you pointed out earlier, that's not new, but it is newly ominous. It's not new. I mean, Belisar has killed 30, I mean, they, the, in the Nika riots, they, they put the bureaucrats of the blues and the greens together. And that was it, or the Ellis Corrales in Spain or Versailles. But what's happened, I think here is that our expectations, especially after World War II, but even after the Civil War, they changed and the individual's relation with the state and felt that the state was no longer the guarantor of liberty and freedom, but of equality and I guess what Roosevelt would call the four freedoms and freedom from want, et cetera. And the, I think the other path, path had been to let the individual be free and then use the church, Christ, religion, or even the state to encourage people to be philanthropic and help their, their friend in need, so to speak. But anyway, where we are now is we have 2 million federal employees. I think one out of every, uh, well, 40% of people work at state regional or local or federal government. And the people that run it, or if you look at them there, and I point out examples in the books, they're judge, jury, and executioner. They're not just enforcing a law, they're interpreting a law to the point where they're making up a new statute. And then they're using the power of the state to go after an individual in an executive fashion. And then they become a, jur a judge and they adjudicate whether that executive action is legal or not. And one of the things that really got me angry, right near here, I had a friend that was a farmer. He had a low spot in his field. I mentioned in the book, water piled up. Suddenly the state came in and said, well, the environmental uh, inland waters way act, this is an inland waterway. We had, we, and the person thought it was absurd. It was only about a foot deep. Nevertheless, they were able to go on his land, take water samples, say that there was too much drainage from nitrogen and try to shut his entire orchard down. And there was nothing in the statute that would ever have imagined that. And so, and then as I started to write, you know, this was started before COVID, but some of the themes that I was voicing, I, uh, we had all had experienced Lois Lerner just on our own, deciding which, uh, groups were willing, uh, worthy of nonprofit status right before the 2012 election. But then we had Anthony Fauci and we had somebody in the national Institute of allergies and infectious diseases suddenly was adjudicating whether you could collect rent or not. He was deciding whether rent should be suspended on his recommendation. Uh, he was telling us that on Monday, masks were good. Tuesday, no good. Wednesday, you needed two of them and on and on and on. And then meanwhile, he would go before Congress and under oath before the American people swear that there was no gain of function subsidy coming out of his, uh, the CDC or the National Institute of Health. It's a complete lie. And so when you look at one of the themes is when you give people this amount of uh, tripartite power and you lift all sanction or audit of them, then you naturally end up with, uh, you know, a, a John Brennan, head of the CIA, former head of the CIA, two times under oath as CIA, just flat out lying to the people under oath saying, you know, we don't run assassinations along the, uh, Pakistani border. We don't spy on Senate computer. These were lies. He admitted they were. Same thing with James Clapper when he said the NSA doesn't spy on people or Andrew McCabe confesses on three occasions that he's lied to a federal investigator. So there was no accountability 
And I think that it's quite sad. And then we talk about the military and what they're, they are acting in a way that's not reflecting legislative oversight. So you, you wonder why now, when you look at poll after poll, that you, these agencies, CIA, NSA, FBI, Pentagon, they're only polling 50 to 45% approval rating. And I think it's because we have given so much power and there's so much money in the North and the New York, Washington nexus that these bureaucrats feel that they have to be adopt ideological stances for their post retirement career trajectories. And they live in a, they live in such a social bubble. I mean, and, and you're talking about uh, a region so dominated by federal fi- uh, funding, and now so flush with it, uh, with all these stimulus bills and all the rest. Yeah. And and by the way, so flush with it that they can't spend it all. And 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 yet at the same time, you have a the the administration that would be the Biden administration going and demanding more, even though there's money being held in all these states that the federal government's complaining they haven't spent yet. But but you look at this, you realize they're recession proof, and 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 so are people on uh, on tenure. The the elites cushion themselves from the effects of all these policies, and uh, and frankly, they don't have a farm where anyone can come and claim that all of a sudden their uh, their watered field is an inland waterway. Um, but that goes back to something else we were talking about, and 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 uh, it were you know that what Drucker would call the knowledge workers and and the the, the people who work with stuff. Uh, what years ago they said that the distinction between atoms, real stuff, and bits or you know uh, information. Um, the reality is, and and by the way, I'm a Christian theologian again, so I got to come back and say that the Christian worldview validates both the intellect and the the body. But, you know, we are material beings. We, we've got to have stuff. We have to eat food. Uh, um, the uh, environmentalists in California and the regulatory state would basically make it impossible to grow food in the breadbasket of, uh, uh, of North America. So w- w- how's this going to end? I mean, even, even people well, who very, shop at Whole Foods have to have food. It, it, it's, it's very dangerous because all of the things you've outlined have national security implications. Just take the, the green revolution. So now here in California, we have the fifth largest reserves of natural gas or oil. The Monterey shale formation is, is comparable to North, the Bakken field. We can't touch it. Uh, we can't touch Anwar in Alaska. We we're going after lenders and pension funds and hedge funds so that they don't invest their, their capital with, uh, fossil fuels. We, we went after Keystone and stopped it. We stopped all federal leases. The re- result was that immediately they projected additional 3 million barrels by now under the Trump administration. Now we're 2 million less. And as a result, gasoline, I filled up uh, diesel fuel yesterday, $6 and 10 cents. Just talked to a person, Mexican American fellow who's very poor and, uh, he has an old diesel pickup and he had to go to three different places to fill it up, to find diesel because there's a $75 limit. And, uh, what are we doing to, what are we doing? We're asking Iran for oil. We're asking Venezuela, we're asking Venezuela and narco state. We've just asked Vladimir Putin before we went into Ukraine, we're still buying his oil probably until this week. And we're asking the house of Saud. And so in the left, I guess they don't. They've been telling us that the earth is a village. Why in the world is it cheaper? It's better. And it's more environmentally sound to have the Russians or the Venezuelans take 
something out of the earth in a way that we do much more environmentally sound and we help our own people and then we become energy independent and we don't have to send young kids over there to fight to it is insane. It can access. only be explained by ideology. It can't be explained. Even only, a, you know, only e- ideology. E- it's not even, empirical. It doesn't make yeah. any sense other than ideology. Right. And you talk about the evolutionaries, and, and these basically are cultural Marxists. And I get a lot of heat for using that term, but I learned the term from the cultural Marxists. Who no, they're actually, very proud of you. Gramsci and they are that they're proud right. of it. And they feel that the system has to evolve yeah. constantly uh, toward a sort of a, a nirvana of absolute mandated equality and sharing of everything. And so you, whether it's, as I said earlier, um, you can really see it when they go after the Senate. Now that that's a really hot topic, especially right. after the Joe Manchin area, they do not like the idea that 250,000 people in Wyoming have one Senator and 20 million here, even though the founders knew that disequilibrium was right. natural was and that they wanted to privilege the states right. they wanted to make the senate exactly like the house and they want to expand the house to some fantastic number of three four thousand so they want to they don't like the system because it doesn't bring them the desired results well one of the christian principles i uh, i take a bit of hope in uh, my ultimate hope is in christ but there there are there are uh structures of creation that god has put in place and one of them is that um that cultures that still have to deal with stuff are very difficult to move uh unimpeded in an ideological direction of leftism and and so i think that's why the left's so frustrated is that i mean they have been there like the the people who identify themselves as cultural marxists to me i i've had my first year of college in 1977 so that's not new and they, they were certain that this uh, dialectic could be playing out long before now. And so you, there are certain young people who, 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 are, who see a, 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 a revolutionary opportunity. But for the most part, um, they're still shopping at Whole Foods. They're still you know, buying their clothes at Urban Outfitters. In other words, they haven't actually uh, uh, pressed for some kind of uh, post-material or uh, uh, post-consumer no, uh, culture. No, I, I have a... I've expressed that a lot in writing. I have this idea that leftism or quality of result or Marxism, whatever term we use of its calibrations, is a psychological mechanism where people who really don't feel comfortable with poor people or middle-class people are people who really are materialistic. They create this facade that they, they love humanity, but not humans. So it's, 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 we've got to stop and more, but I don't really care about that guy around the corner with that that old truck. I don't want him around me. I don't care. Your last major chapter, Professor, is entitled Globalists. And uh, this is a phenomenon we see all around us. Yeah, it is. It's an ancient idea. The ancients had a word for it in Greek, cosmopolitanism, cosmos, world, politics, citizen. Socrates supposedly said he was a citizen first of the world. Sounds nice, but there's uh, when you expand the world, the governing community to a world with all different sorts of political ramifications, ethnic, social, it's unwieldy. And so I'll, and it's usually a facade for a few people elite to grab power. So whether it was Alexander, the great brotherhood of man, people are still fooled by that. Alexander killed more people 
in Asian, uh, in Asia in his 10 years and almost anybody, but he called it the brotherhood of man. And the same with the Roman empire, the same with Napoleonic mercantile system in Europe, league of nations. So they're either one model where a particular enlightened, uh, ruler is going to destroy local and national sovereignty and harmonize everything, or, uh, you're going to have a transnational body. And it's funny how the dystopia that George Orwell described is exactly that states have re everybody's been reduced to three powers, East Oceana and et cetera. But that consolidation of power is what drives people that are the architects of these global systems. And you can see it with the great reset in Davos. I talk about these people really, if you listen to them, Klaus Schwab, they really do want to override national laws, boundaries, sovereignties, and then have a, a, an elect group of people who just know better than we do, but they don't have the power yet. So they need transnational power and they always do it with a smile a suit and tie and they deplore ignorance and, and et cetera. So they're very dangerous people. They always have been. We have just a, a moment or so in conclusion. Uh, what's your ground for hope? My grounds for hope is that I don't think the system has ever worked in the direct direction that we're going into with a medieval two-class system. There's, so I'm, I'm, I'm seeing now when I go to work, it's funny. I see all these kids in their twenties with these degrees that we've talked about, but there's a whole nother group of working Hispanic kids or lower class, so-called lower class, lower middle-class white kids. And suddenly in this economy, somebody needs an electrician. Somebody wants right. to put a kitchen and these guys have no debt and they're getting 50, 80, a hundred dollars an hour. They're so in short supply. So we're starting right. to recalibrate. Uh, our value system a little bit, the man who can come in or the woman who can get up in your attic and take that, uh, knob and tube wiring out. It, it's much more difficult to do that than to major in sociology. And that's much more beneficial for society. So I think we're starting to see a, a little bit of the return of value of muscular labor because the other, the other system doesn't work. I think as we look at nationwide. I think there's a, a sense that we've gone about as far as we can go with identity politics. If we go any farther, we're going to have open civil strife. And so I think that the Martin Luther King, um, content of our character is going to return because we have no choice. Putin, you know, everybody's worried about Vladimir Putin. He doesn't care about who's woke and who's not. And our enemies don't care about that. So uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that all of these theories that have been so pernicious the last 20 years, they got their way and they reached the ultimate extent of their practicality and they're, they're destroying the country. And I think R reality has it. a way of intruding. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's going to be a mm -hmm. natural, you saw it in Virginia you, with a school board, you're seeing it with a school board election in San Francisco. Uh, I think you're going to see Mexican-American people, I'm just speaking because I live in a community about nine, that is going to vote for the first time, not 20, 30, 40, but over half will vote for a more traditionalist agenda. And I don't think the left has any idea what's coming. Professor Victor Davis Hanson, thank you for this book, The Dying Citizen, and thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Thank you.
Many thanks to my guest, Victor Davis Hansen, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking. Thinking.